Welcome, everyone, to the Food, Farms, and Chefs radio show with restaurant industry author Kevin Wilson, highly acclaimed chef Gene Blum, and food photojournalist Amaris Pollock. Join them as they interview the biggest names in the restaurant industry, tell you about the latest food trends, and give you recipes and cooking tips, too. So let's get the show started. Welcome to our listeners around the world via the podcast, our listeners on our FM station in New York and our two Philadelphia radio stations. It's Tuesday evening drive time for you. Great show today. We'll start with a fantastic interview with author Bill Schindler, who talks about his new book, Eat Like a Human. We will then talk with another author, Scott Lively, and he will discuss his new book, for the love of beef, the good, the bad, and the future of America's favorite meat. Both author interviews in this episode are awesome. They're very good. And we will end this great episode with a great interview with Sweet Fangs, Nuts, and Candy in Conshohocken, PA. Chef Gene, introduce us to your fabulous guest. At this time, it is a really great honor to introduce a little bit of a different guest for our show today, Dr. Bill Schindler, who is an archaeologist and anthropologist, but has a brand new book coming out that's called Eat Like a Human, which examines our nutritional needs and how we eat and how we should be eating from a purely anthropological and archaeological point of view. That's Welcome to Food Farms and Chefs. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. So having read and done a, a good deal of research about you and read your book uh, in the early version of it here, tell us a little bit, tell our readers how you really developed this keen interest in nutrition and you know your upbringing and what motivated you to do the research that you've done. Sure. So, you know, like many people, I've, I've, I've really had an incredibly unhealthy relationship with food practically my entire life. I was, I was a, a very overweight kid. Um, in, in high school, I became an athlete. I looked healthier from the outside. I had an athletic build, but I, because I was working out so hard, but I still wasn't healthy. I didn't feel right. And in fact, I ended up becoming a Division One athlete. I wrestled for Ohio State. Um, in, in my late teens and early 20s. And then as soon as I stopped wrestling, all the weight came back on uh, with a whole bunch of other uh, metabolic disease. And I was, I've been scrambling, searching my entire life to answer this question, what I should be eating. And I figured if somebody just told me what I should eat, everything would, all my problems would disappear and have a better body self-image and feel better and all those other sorts of things. And I was looking at trying a whole bunch of other, you know, a whole number of diets and then it really became incredibly important to me when I got married and my wife and I started having our own family. And I really wanted to make sure that I was nourishing my family, my kids and, and my wife properly. Um, so, I was, you know, one tract in my life was always looking to answer this one question. And the other part of my life, which I thought for was a completely different tract, was my work with uh, primitive technologies and ancestral skills and archaeology and anthropology. And then there was one moment when it all came together. 
uh, when, when my oldest daughter was, was really, really young. She had just been born. And I was outside replicating stone tools, uh, which I was practicing at the time, a minimum an hour every day. And I know it sounds strange to many people listening, but I was really looking into the specifics of, of, of ancient stone tool production. And my wife came out into the garage. She said, hey, listen, can you, can you bring this inside? And I said, yeah, I'll, I'll be in in a couple minutes. She goes, no, I need you to bring in, like, all this passion, all this energy, all this drive you have for this into the house. Like, we have a family now, and, and can you can you make what you do somehow applicable to help our family? Like, the stone tools are fine, but, you know. So I spent literally weeks thinking about how does this all work together, and then it hit me. And it turns out that just about every single prehistoric technology ever invented has something to do with food. And I mean three, almost three and a half million years worth of uh, uh, different types of, of technological innovation and inventions by our ancestors. Almost every one of them has something to do with food. Getting food, processing food, cooking food, sharing food, storing food, redistributing food, whatever it is. And when I, fi- I realized that it's, it's almost all of the brain power, combined brain power of all of our ancestors for, almost mil- for millions of years was focused on creating technologies to do something to our food, then it's probably really important and we should be paying attention to it because after all, our ancestral di- you know, our dietary past over these three and a half million years literally built us homo sapiens as a species, both biologically and culturally. And what I found out after decades worth of, of archeological and anthropological research is that I had been asking the wrong question all along. That same question that all of us are asking, what should I eat? It is important, but the important question for humans, the more important question is how I should eat. What kinds of things do I need to do to my food to make it as safe and nourishing for my body before I even put it into, our, into my mouth? So you discovered a great deal of your uh, answers and, and a lot of your research came about when you were doing a special for National Geographic called The Great Human Race, which was yeah. you know, a phenomenal uh, special on National Geographic, and you were going around to a lot of different cultures in the world. What kind of common denominators did you find between all those different cultures? Oh, that's a really, really good question. So we, when we filmed that show, one of the great things about that show, it, it was 10 episodes. Um, it started in Tanzania, went through Africa, through the Middle East, across Asia, and then ended literally in Oregon, um, was that in every place we were, for a period of time before we started filming, we had access to the indigenous or traditional groups that lived in that area to learn from. We got to forge with them and hunt with them and cook with them and eat with them and share all sorts of things together with them. And that was a a huge, it was a lifetime worth of an education for me. But the common denominator was, were several things, common denominators were several things. One is that the connection between people and their food was, for lack of a better word, visceral. I mean, every, it, was, it was so incredibly connected. You know, people knew not only where their food came from, but every step it had gone through from the moment it was harvested or killed or picked or dug up out of the ground to the moment they put it in their mouths. And we, we, we today like to, you know, do things to sort of replicate some of that connection by going to farmer's markets and meeting our farmers and all that, which is, which is nice and it's great. Um, but there's other more powerful aspects of it that are, are uh, I think, sometimes overlooked today as well. Like, you get to see the direct consequences of your actions. If you over-harvest or over-hunt or treat a resource badly, 
you see it the next season or you see it the next year. We don't see that in the grocery stores anymore because stuff, if you can't get it from Florida, we get it from California or we ship it in from Argentina. The price might change a little, but that's about it. So that direct connection to uh, food is, is incredibly valuable for that. But also the uh, reverence or respect that every group I was with had for their food and where it came from. It took a lot of work to dig something out of the ground. It took a lot of work to harvest that animal and then carry it back two miles back to camp and you know, or to hunt it, whatever they were doing with it. So they used, whenever it made sense, they used every bit of the resources that they had harvested. Um, the other thing that I think is incredibly important is that I have never in my life, whether it was the work I did with National Geographic or the research that my family and I did for years since, um, and, and we literally were all over the world. We were, in, you know, as a family in the 16 different countries doing work with indigenous and traditional groups. Um, I have never found evidence in my life of a traditional diet that doesn't have fermentation at its core. Um, it, it, it's incredibly important. We see it through time. We see it through space. And the other thing that's incredibly important is use of the entire animal. You know, meat is relished in some of these, uh, some of these groups for sure. But in most cases, it's an afterthought. It's it's the blood, the fat, and the organs, which is which is not only for humans, it's other animals as well, predatory animals. When the blood and fat and organs are available, they are consumed first, and they are truly relished. And then, um, for a number of different reasons, then the meat is utilized. You know, it's very interesting. I got an opportunity several years ago to be on a ranch and witness the birth of an animal. And the farmer went and cut a piece of the placenta right off and said, mm. you need to try this. And being a, an individual that's willing to take that risk, you know, those type of situations are so incredibly healthy and nourishing to our bodies. People don't realize the, you know, the effects of utilizing an entire animal. So thank you for explaining that. You know, it's a really wonderful thing. But to get back to the fermentation point, it's something that's starting to grow in popularity a little bit. You know, people are starting to learn about that. I personally here, I, I make kimchi. I do a lot with pickling. I do a lot of different, you know, processes here, uh, both fermentation. And then I obviously spirits and things like that as well. What are some of the things that, that people need to know about the benefits of fermented products? Well, first off, you know, I like when we think about fermented foods, I, I like to think about them as it, it, the process of fermentation is controlled rot. What, what you're doing as the agent of, of uh, you know, the human that's involved with it is you are actually controlling a natural biological process and doing it for, for the benefit of, of our digestive tracts and our health, but also it creates incredible flavors and textures and smells and all sorts of things. But the, the, the great thing about fermentation is that um, it puts raw materials, you know, the resources we have access to, um, through a number of different chemical and physical processes that do three incredibly important things. And I think this is the cornerstone of not only uh, fermentation, but the foundation of our, uh, of our dietary past uh, for three and a half million years. Fermentation is one of those technologies that helps make food safe, nutrient dense, and bioavailable. In other words, when you use fermentation, quite, there's a number of different fermentations, but 
for most of the fermentations we're talking about in the food world are using lactobacillus bacteria to um, eat something, usually some sort of, of, of carbohydrate, and produce lactic acid. And when it's producing lactic acid, the acidity level goes up, which means the pH goes down, and it by default becomes safer because of that, of that um, higher acidity. It also chemically and physically um, transforms the food itself into something that's more digestible to our body. In other words, our bodies have to work less hard to access the nutrients that are in it. It's very important for, for people to understand that just because you put a nutrient in your mouth doesn't mean that it goes to where it needs to go to in your body. Two things have to be uh, in place for that to happen. One is you have to be healthy. Your digestive tract has to be healthy. You have to have a really healthy gut microbiome. Uh, and the food that you're taking in has to be in the right state uh, for us to uh, absorb those nutrients properly. Just because you put it in your mouth doesn't mean it goes to where it needs to be. Fermentation definitely, definitely helps with that. And, and, and you know, a fermented food is also a completely alive food. You're digesting a number of different probiotics when you're eating these foods. You know, properly fermented vegetables, like you mentioned, like kimchi or sauerkrauts, completely alive, full of probiotics. Fermented dairy like yogurts and kefirs, full of probiotics. Fermented meats like real traditional salamis made properly are actually still alive when you're eating them. And, you know, fermented salami is a raw meat that's been through a fermentation process. And it, it, when it's done properly, it's actually still alive and is just as probiotic rich as kimchi or, or yogurt. People today, a lot of people are starting to get into some of the fermented beverages, some of the fermented dairy products, and doing them at home for that, you know, health reasons. And what they're finding too is that they're starting to just generally feel better. A lot of gastro or gastro issues, uh, gastrological issues, you know, are caused by just our out of whack diets and the things that we put in our system. And people who tend to take a step back and look at what were we doing, you know, a hundred years ago, a thousand years ago, how is that, you know, better for us? And did you discover that across the globe that, you know, there was less health issues with some of these more primitive tribes than we see in America today, which should be one of the healthiest places in the world? 100%. And, you know, the, the healthiest the healthiest group of people I've ever been around, and this is, uh, anecdotal is not the word, um, it's not substantiated by any science. It's just literally, I, I, you know, spending time with these people and just the way that they looked and acted and their aura, the way they stood, the way they presented, all of it spoke complete genuine health to me was the Samburu Warriors in Kenya. And I'm telling you, just from the first moment I set eyes on them, the, the way that they stood, their form it looked like Michael or Angelo should have been there carving them because they epitomized to me the human form. And they had beautiful white, broad smiles. They, uh, their teeth, their eyes were completely white. And, and all of it was just, it spoke health. And their diet consists almost exclusively on blood and raw milk. And that's, it, and that's what they eat literally twice a day, every day. And it was so mind-boggling to me that not only was did, did that happen, but you know, I came back here to Maryland after my family and I spent time with them, and you know, I'm always as as all of us are engaged in conversations about food and diet and health and 
you know, feeding a growing population and all, you know, sustainability and all of those sorts of conversations. And, and it struck me that when I came back here to Maryland, the two resources, the two foods that are the foundation of the healthiest people I've ever met in my life, blood and raw milk, out of those, one is illegal in Maryland and the other one is practically impossible to get. And I'm just, I just think to myself, you know, not necessarily that everybody needs to start drinking raw milk and blood, but if we really want to engage, if we really want to have a conversation that has a real end result that makes a difference about human diet and health and, and all you know, ethical approaches to food and sustainability, then we don't have all the tools in our toolkit yet to really engage in that conversation. There's so many things that are just not in our conscious yet uh, that we, we would even consider food. But luckily, insects are starting to creep back in. Um, but there's so much out there still that we're not going to solve the problem with just lab-based meat and, you know, the other sorts of, uh, of fixes that we're looking at today. You don't have to go back very far in, you know, cooking history to find blood as it, like a thickening agent and sure. as an ingredient in recipes. You, you can find recipes from the turn of the century and even into the 20s and 30s and then in Europe, even a little bit more recently, where blood is a very important ingredient for thickening of products and will be listed as, you know, well as a, a roux or a starch or, you know, other thickening agents. So what do you think took place that really changed our whole view on products such as that? It's certainly a whole number of different factors, and, I, and I'm not aware of all of them, but there are a few things that I, that I am aware of. Um, and one of the things I write about in, in the book, uh, uh, there were a lot of changes happening here in America uh, right after the Civil War uh, that really started to lay the groundwork for taking away those parts of the animals that, first of all, I think are the most nutritious, um, but also provide an approach to animals in our food that are more sustainable and ethical and even nutritious than, than what we have today. You know, one of them is at the end of the Civil War, we have the Transcontinental Railroad. So with the Transcontinental Railroad, we start, there were different uh, pockets that developed around the country that were raising large amounts of animals. And the ones we still think of today as, as places of like barbecue, for example, like St. Louis, right, and Chicago. And when they, they started trying to ship these animals across the country to local butchers. And what they found was that, you know, the railway wasn't great. It was a long journey. These animals started losing weight. Some were dying and people were losing money. So they then, you know, with the invention of the refrigerated rail car, which wasn't very reliable, but they were certain starting to try to figure it out. Some of these, what they started to do at these uh, major areas where they're raising lots of these animals is then they would slaughter and butcher those animals there put all that food on these refrigerated rail cars. But since they weren't very reliable and the temperature wasn't very consistent, only the parts of the animals that actually um, could sustain fluctuations in temperature, maybe even higher temperatures like meat would actually get shipped. So, uh, you know, blood doesn't last very well outside of a, a certain temperature range. Organ meats don't last very well. So really it just started we're replacing local abattoirs and local butchers with these large mega processing facilities and trying to ship these parts. And only those parts like flesh or meat would, would make it to the different areas around the country. And at the same time, you know, those cuts of meat were you know, starting to raise in value. And 
you have a lot of immigration happening at the end of the 1800s and the early 1900s, and you have literally rich white people eating filet and eating T-bone steak and eating all of these high dollar cuts of meat. And no matter where these immigrants were coming from, they were coming from a from a, uh, a a dietary tradition that used all these different parts of the animals. But people would come and 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 as a goal, they they wanted to live like the people that had more money and eat the kind of food that those people had. I mean, it's a common thing we see it around the world still today. And we started uh, rejecting some of these traditional diets from no matter where uh, people were coming from. And unfortunately, now when when we want to go out to eat and pay a lot of money for some sort of animal product, it's always a cut of meat. Unfortunately, nowadays, a lot of times it's getting a lot leaner. So, you know, and that's not certainly a lot of other factors as well. But right now, one of the other things that really, really bothers me is that in the food and nutrition world, when we, it's, we're so far removed from the parts of the animals that we can eat, when we talk about eating any part of an animal, we always say meat. I mean, by default, it's, are, are we eating meat? Are you eating meat? Are you a meat eater? Is there meat on the menu? And there's several problems with that. One is just using that word uh, doesn't even put in our conscious the idea that we can be eating other things. And we start to forget that there was a living creature on the other end of that plate, or the other end of that meal, a living, breathing creature that gave its life for us to eat. And then even in, in, the, in the restaurant world, it's even worse. You know, in, in, in kitchens, we don't even say meat much. We say protein, which is even a little bit further removed. And every one of those... Um, uh, removals has dire consequences, right? It, it, we forget that something was living, breathing, and and and, um, and running around and gave its life for for us to, to nourish us. And we turn our backs. We, we're not even paying attention much to the to the modern industrial meat industry, and we see what the results of that has been. So, the other thing I think that has really caused um, us to to take those parts of the animal off our tables and out of our conscience is literally just what's in the grocery stores. Because as we become further removed, many of us aren't hunters and many of us aren't foragers anymore. Many of us don't cook all of our food entirely from scratch at home any longer. We need to rely on other people to, to, to guide us and to tell us what we should be eating, how we should be getting our food. Some of that comes from nutritionists, some of it comes from doctors, some of it comes from podcasts and documentaries and books and those sorts of things. But a lot of it subconsciously just comes from what we see in our grocery stores. If we see it in the grocery store, we consider it food. And if we don't see it in the grocery store, we probably don't even consider it as something we could even eat. And awful really, you know, organ meats and blood and fat, it really aren't in American grocery stores any longer, at least the way they used to be. And I think that plays a large role in it as well. Even types of, I have a little Italian restaurant that I go to here then opened up during COVID and, and I love this little place. I walked in and one of the first things that I saw on the menu was that they had cheek meat. Yeah. Things like cheek meat, which to me is one of my favorite pieces of an animal. It's just so rich and, and sweet and just delicious. And people are like, you eat cheek meat? I'm like, absolutely. And, you know, fortunately from Philadelphia, you know, pepper pot soup's a big thing, so tripe is a wonderful, a wonderful thing. But you know, we can explore when you go out in Lancaster and you know find some awful out there and find some different yeah. things. And 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 you know, haggis is is you know something you get out here in Lancaster. So you know, we can get some of that and explore some of that. And I really do encourage people to try some different you know 
me to go out and explore that and, and really, you know, look, you know, towards that. It, something that we're really missing in America, and you're right, we, we become, you know, away from, we, we get away from realizing what it is. My, my wife always makes, you know, the plea that we should get a pet pig, and I make the argument that absolutely we can do that, just understand that a year we're going to eat it. <laughs> and she says, no, 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 we can't do that. We can't eat a pet. I'm sure we can. We can eat a pet, absolutely. You know, matter of fact, you know, you know how I feel about that. So, it, you know, people do understand, need to understand that, you know, there are so many things. And we, we talk about sustainability. Well, you know, taking and making sure that everything in that animal goes to use there's so many wonderful things out there that we can discover by just looking back a little bit to our ancestry and to our roots and what they, you know, what they used and, and how they used every part of that. So your book that's ready to hit the markets here, where can people find out more about, first of all, your book and where can we get your book Two, about your website? Cause your website's absolutely phenomenal and gives so much insight uh, into the project you're doing and, you know, options for people. There's so many lessons to be learned. And then about some of your other projects that you're working on. I mean, you have, you know, a lot of research going on. You're doing some teaching with it. Tell us a little bit about where people can find out much more about you. Okay. Well, thank you. So the first, as far as the book is concerned, it actually – uh, launches or I'm sorry, releases in the U.S. on November 16th, and you can get it online at any of the major uh, book outlets, and also in in stores like Barnes and Noble, and, and even some of the local bookshops and those sorts of places as well. It all is also available as an audio book, and I am thrilled to be able to say that I did actually read the audio book myself, um, which was something I was hoping to be able to do. I actually had to audition to do it, which is great too. But um, so we do have an audio book. We do have it on uh, digitally as well and also in hardcover. My web, I have two websites that might be of interest. One is eatlikeahuman.com, which has a whole bunch of information. It has blogs. It has information about the type of research we were doing in the book, uh, for the book. It has links to all sorts of online classes, and we teach classes from everything. Some are, are, are live and some are um, in person and some are uh, pre-recorded from butchering to fermenting to cheese making, uh, sourdough, all those sorts of things that we tackle in the book. We provide opportunities to learn from um, through that website. And then the, uh, the modernstoneagekitchen.com, I'm sorry, it's just modernstoneagekitchen.com is where my wife and I just launched this in June and we have a ribbon cutting uh, on the 16th, the same day the book releases. And this is a place where we do in-person teaching, but also make all of the food that uh, is we write about and have recipes for in the book, we actually make it here and provide it uh, for the community. So you can actually come here and, and, and purchase the food or take classes directly, uh, directly there. Uh, on, on social media, it's at Dr. Bill Shimmer, so at Dr. Bill Shimmer. And then finally, I'm super excited. Um, the other project that I'm working on right now, uh, several projects, but one is the Eastern Shore Food Lab. Uh, this is a, a project that I started through Washington College about uh, four years ago, and now uh, we're, we're off on our own, and that is a nonprofit that is focused on just uh, the research 
the teaching and the outreach that comes from this approach by looking at our ancestral diets, uh, by, by working uh, with indigenous and traditional groups around the world, and by taking a really solid foundational look at our uh, at, at the archaeological record to help uh, inform us how we can be eating the most nourishing, ethical, and sustainable diet possible. Well, I have to tell you, I'm very excited to be learning about cooking and changing some of my dietary habits from an archaeologist and anthropologist as opposed to a chef and a nutritionist. It's been very enlightening for me. Hopefully our readers took a lot from this and are going to go out and do a little research, go out tomorrow and get your book when it goes uh, out on release. Congratulations. Absolutely phenomenal. Must read. Thank you for being with us on Food Farms and Chess. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Thank you, Bill. Thank, Thank you. you. All right, let's take a break and we'll be right back. To become a sponsor of our show and have your business or event promoted on every single podcast platform, two Philadelphia radio stations on Tuesdays at 6 p.m. evening drive time, an FM station in New York, and to the millions of Facebook users worldwide with access to the Facebook mobile app. Send us an email to either foodfarmsandchefs at yahoo.com or diningonadime at yahoo.com. And we're back. Amorous Pollock, introduce us to your fabulous guest. Hi, I want to introduce everyone to Scott Lively, who is the author of For the Love of Beef, The Good, the Bad, and the Future of America's Favorite Meat. And I have to agree, I am a huge meat lover, a huge beef lover. If anybody ever listens to the show, they will figure that out with, you know, with leaps and bounds. So, Scott, welcome to our show. Thank you for the invitation. I appreciate it. No problem. So you are, you know, the, the according to your book, the for, foremost authority on beef. What, ha, what gives you that title? And, you know, then we're going to dig into your book a little bit and what inspired you to get, you know, become a beef um, authority to, you know, and also I know that you're the president and co-founder of um, Raised, you know, RaisedAmerican.com. Yeah. Ra- yeah. RaisedAmerican.com. Yeah, raised and um, so we'll get a little, we'll get into that a little bit. So, you know, what, what created, what inspired you to uh, leave the tech industry and, you know, get into beef as much as you did? Well, as far as the title goes, I think it's a self-appointed title, and I'm pretty sure there's nothing official about it, but uh, I uh, definitely have spent the last uh, 18 to 20 years in the beef industry. I've started multiple uh, sustainable uh, uh, alternative, I'll call them beef companies. Um, My background was definitely in software supply chain management uh, on the tech side. I spent most of my young life in that dot-com bubble. Uh, I'm old now. I'm going to be, I'm going to be 50 in January. So, uh, you know, time's creeping up on me, but the last uh, 18 years I've spent in the beef industry and I've learned the beef industry from every segment of the supply chain you could think of. So my supply chain skills helped me with, there is a genetics component, which we'll call bull semen. That bull semen turns into a calf, that calf, you know, turns into a, uh, a steer, that steer turns into a fat cattle and turns into meat and turns into products. So 
that's what really helped me understand uh, the supply chain of beef was having a background in supply chain management. Um, over the past 18 years, uh, I've been involved in organic grass-fed beef mostly, and the reason being isn't because it's so much of a lifestyle decision or so much of a, uh, hey, let's all go green. It's that I really believed farmers needed an alternative and they needed something different to make more money. And if you look at what's happening today with beef prices being incredibly high, consumers paying more than they've ever paid in their lives, but cattle ranchers really aren't making any more. In fact, they're making less money. I have a problem with that. So in my opinion, I tell all producers, all ranchers, find a niche, find something different. I don't care if it's Wagyu, if it's grass-fed, it's organic, if it's natural Angus, find something unique and you can charge more money for your product and you won't be as beholden to the uh, big beef corporations of America. Now, um, that kind of gets into, there, there, you know, you have the four big beef um, uh, people yeah, the, who pack. Four, yep. Yes, and that is part of your book. But I will, I will say, like, from what I've read in your book, I, I'm like, there's a lot of information that I, you know, that I don't know that you are, you know, kind of putting in, writing down in listing it out and explaining, you know, everything that's behind the scenes that like a regular consumer like myself wouldn't know. Yeah. And it's almost, I, when I, when I brought you on, I was almost like, okay, well your book's full of acronyms that I didn't even think of. Like, you know, the, the um, hazard analysis and control point, like was one of yeah, them. The plants, exactly. Yeah. But I mean, that's imperative because that's kind of like our health, the health of and well-being you know, and making sure that we're not consuming something that's not contaminated in any way, shape, or form. Yeah. So that's a well, good you, thing. You, you, you bring up a really good point there, and i got to tell you something. You know, Americans eat more ground beef or hamburger than any other culture in the world. And i got to tell you this, and it's not just because, you know, I'm part of a packing plant. That the USDA has an incredible protocol put together to keep us safe from E. coli. And the, the main foodborne illness from ground beef would be E. coli. Think about the millions. Think about it this way. There's 98 to 105,000 animals processed every day, cattle in America. There's millions of hamburgers sold every day in America. People rarely if ever get sick. The USDA has really good controls and um, interventions that stop people from getting E. coli. And it's because of what yeah. happened in the 70s with Jack in the Box and other stuff. Um, What's interesting about E. coli is E. coli really only shows up for the most part in ground beef. Unless you're eating raw steak, it's almost impossible to get E. coli from a, from a solid muscle cut from a steak. You always get it from ground beef because it's, 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 you know, it's augered, it's mixed together, it's blended, it, 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 you know, it basically almost incubates, and, and, and it's a surface-level bacteria where if you just sear a steak for like 10 seconds on each side, you've killed everything living on that. So almost all E. coli comes from ground beef. And what to me is amazing is how good of a job the USDA does in protecting us from foodborne illness. And they really do a good job. I'm not just saying that. It, it's, we, are, we are lucky to have the, the, the uh, implementations they put in to protect us from uh, foodborne illness. And I like that you go into detail with that in your book, um, along with so many other things, you know, with like, the different cut, like, and I wanted to ask you, what's one of your favorite cuts? Since you did mention that, you know, cuts are like, you know, obviously ground beef can infiltrate, uh, E. coli can infiltrate ground beef, but 
on a surface area of like a cut of meat, like, you know, you kill it off as soon as, if there's any present, you kill it off yeah. as soon as you put it on the grill. What is one of your favorite cuts? And what is one of the cuts that are unknown to most of us today that you would recommend? That's really, there's two great questions. So first of all, I tell a little story in the book about my Thursday nights and, uh, you know, I've been, I've been divorced for seven years, so I have a very nice Thursday night. I'm alone. I'm very happy about it. I come home, <laughs> pop a little bur- <laughs> I pop a little bourbon, and I make a New York strip with grilled onions, caramelized onions. I sear it. I put it on. That's all I have. Nothing else. New York strip, onions, bourbon. That's, that's my Thursday night. There's not a vegetable. I mean, there's not a potato. Sounds like a good. That's what I have. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm alone. That sounds like a good Thursday night. night. Can we develop I, I an online eating club to space on this? <laughs> we should. <laughs> we, we could Zoom I, I'm, toast I'm each other, this. exactly. <laughs> I mean, I would throw in some... Do- and, 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 yep, I'm there. A Delmonico Everybody or whatever. I, I, yeah, yeah. Delmonico's a ribeye, exactly. Everybody that knows me knows, leave me alone from about 4 p.m. to about 10 p.m. on Thursdays. <laughs> I'm in my zone. Don't bug me. So... Uh, <laughs> On, on other cuts, you know, the, the, the reason I think it's appropriate you bring that up is that meat prices have gone crazy for ribeye, strip loin, and tenderloin to prices we've never seen before in the world. And there are some mm. really good cuts. There's some really good cuts out there that you can buy. You can ask your butcher. You can ask your grocery store. They will get these. One of the things that's really popular on the West Coast is called the tri-tip. And the tri-tip's a great steak that can be sliced into, like, steak tips. It eats a lot like a skirt or a flank. But don't forget about the skirt and the flank steak. Those are really good thin meats. Uh, they're called belly meats because they're from the stomach. They're incredibly tender. They're great to eat. Um, but other stuff that I eat is I like uh, an oxtail, uh, asabuco. Uh, these things are not expensive. They're all un- under $7 a pound cuts. And if you go to your store and requesting, I guarantee you, if you have a legitimate grocery store or butcher, they will find these sub cuts for you that are tender, that are flavorful, that are not going to kill your, uh, your pocketbook. And there's stuff you haven't eaten before. One of my favorite uh, cuts of meat is called a flap meat, F-L-A-P, flap meat. And it actually shows up in a lot of Asian and Chinese restaurants. It's just their stir fry. But a flap meat's a very large piece of meat. It almost looks like the size of a brisket, but it eats really well. It's incredibly tender, and you can do a lot to it. So don't be afraid to experiment. Try something new. I always argue with my ex-wife. I'm like, all she would eat is like, you know, uh, petite filet with chardonnay. I'm like, you know, try something different. So one day I, I cut <laughs> a ribeye, that, like the Delmonico. I cut the ribeye to look like a flame mignon. I grilled it. She said, it's the best filet I ever had. I said, yeah, it's because of ribeye. You finally tried something different. <laughs> so, so don't be afraid to go out and try something completely new. Yeah, I have to say, I've, um, I'm a huge um, advocate of trying different foods that you're not used to because you never know. Like, you honestly, you don't know if you're going to like it if you don't try it. And try it twice, yeah. not just one time. I'm not going to knock on the beef industry. The beef industry has been conditioned to sell you the most expensive cuts in the world. They want to sell you a filet, sell you a tomahawk, sell you a New York strip because those things are, you know, 14, 18 bucks. They're not conditioned to sell you low-end cuts that are much more valued because they can put that in the grind and make just as much money for it. They'll sell it in a food service. So you've been conditioned to buy high-end cuts, but there's a lot of great middle meats out there that I think are phenomenal. Yeah. Well, now, you, so, oh, sorry. I was going to say, um, Gene, ask your question, and then we'll we'll find out where to, to find his book and where to find him on social media. Good, Chef. I'm a big fan of saying that filet is fast food. You know, it's easy. You throw it on, it's done. 
you know, these yeah. lesser cuts that you're talking about really are where all the flavor is. It's, you know, there's a lot of Hell movement, yeah. there's a lot of blood flow, there's so much better flavor in things like oxtail or, you know, the, even the tri-tip, some of these cuts of beef you're talking about. People just need to, you know, really go out and try it, and they're going to be blown away. I totally agree with you. And, and you don't even have to over-season them. They already are good. I think you're right. I think fillets become the, the you know, the, the big chicken of beef. It's like the blank canvas. Anybody can do that. But try something new, and you'll be really impressed. And try something that actually has some chew to it, some bite. And you can find out what to try in your book, which uh, where can we find your book and where can we find you online? Well, thank you. You can buy the book on Amazon.com. You can buy it on Target.com, Barnes & Noble. Anywhere that sells books, you can buy it. Um, <laughs> I think I found one at a Barnes & Noble bookstore and about fell over the other day. Um, I, know my mom's <laughs> bought, <laughs> I know my mom's bought every one of them in the state of Arkansas. So. Um, uh, and then if you can go to the for the love of beef.com, my website and see it. Um, and uh, also go to raiseamerican.com and you can find information about the beef, the book and uh, great products. Some of the lesser cuts we talked about that are not pocketbook killers, but are really, really tasty. Thank you. I, and I look forward to reading the rest of your book. I, you know, I have a PDF form of it and I can pull, you know, go to the stores and, purchase it as a gift for uh, family and friends so that they, they can to learn about all of the things behind the scenes that you went over in your book. Well, if you guys can get me an address, I'll send you all, all, all three assigned copies. Oh, that's great. <laughs> I would appreciate that. We would I love will. that. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you for guys. joining thank us. For on, no problem. Thank you for joining us on Food Farms and Chefs. Anytime. Thank you very much. Good show. Thank you. And I'll be in touch about this Thursday night. Bourbon and beef. I teach bourbon, so you know I teach classes in bourbon. So. All right. Let's take a break, and we'll be right back. Tune in to Dining on a Dime to hear from Gene Blum, our chef, educator, consultant, and historian. You can find him across social media at ibfoodie 2 or Gene Blum at ibfoodie2 at yahoo.com. And you can also tune in to listen to Amaris Pollock and find her across social media at arpollockus at gmail.com. And we're back. Amaris Pollock, introduce us to your fabulous guests. Hi, I want to introduce everyone to Tammy and Nicole Marcosi of Sweet Things. <laughs> Nuts and candy. Um, it's a food truck that is also going to be available in Conshohocken as a pop-up. So, Tammy and Nicole, welcome to our show. Hi. Hi. Thank you for having us. <laughs> no problem. So, um, you're a mother-daughter team that owns this this business. And you know, how did you how did you get started in in becoming a you know, opening up sweet things, nuts, nuts and candy. Okay. Well, first, it, it is solely Nicole's business. I'm just the momager. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and how did you get started? Um, so this has been my dream um, since I've been a little kid. Uh, the food truck is to get my foot in the door to having a storefront one day. Um 
that's good. I mean, you know, business is booming right now, I think. Like everybody is opening up restaurant businesses and you have a particular niche um, because who doesn't love, you know, candy? And your food truck, um, from previous conversations that I've had with you, you carry ice cream, if I yes. remember correctly. And where is that from? Uh, we carry Bassett's ice cream. Oh, that's great. We've had Bassett's on before, and, you know, they have they have really good ice cream that's creamy and, you know, and also I know that, you know, you make ice cream bars for the, the kids um, during the summertime. Yes. Yes, we make cho uh, chocolate chip ice cream sandwiches. She bakes the cookies fresh on the truck, and she put, puts whatever flavor ice cream you want in them, and they're delicious. <laughs> now, um, I do know that you also customize different, like, oh, like gifts and whatnot, like including popcorn um, for events and for, you know, gifts or whatever. So what, what is the current flavor of popcorn that you have going on? Um, so right now we have a salted turtle pecan popcorn, um, buckeye popcorn that is peanut butter and chocolate, and then a cinnamon pecan popcorn, and um, a movie theater style popcorn. So does that come in like individual baggies or, you know, can people like say, say I come to you and I'm like, I want like, you know, candy, candy cane, you know, popcorn for Christmas or whatever. I want to go outside outside the box and actually like create something would i be able to come to you and you know have you customize uh popcorn for me okay so yes uh well only what we have in the store is is what you know we'd be able to customize obviously um and that that um varies throughout the year what what she would have but um her main her what everybody loves is her movie style uh style popcorn people go crazy over that <laughs> i mean who wouldn't love movie style popcorn especially that buttery richness that and saltedness you know that's on it so what what else do you offer like you offer candies as well correct yes yeah, she on the truck it's all prepackaged uh style candy uh, candy bars and and old style candy, anything that you can think of, pre prepackaged. That's usually for private event events. She has cotton candy. Um, we have gourmet cotton candy, all different flavors of that. Um, in the pop up shop, we do um, boxes of chocolates, caramel popcorn, um, pretzel trays. Oh. Gosh, we have a ton of stuff at the store. Um, <laughs> I can't think. Uh, I can't think of all the stuff, but melting wafers to do your own chocolates, cocoa bombs, breakable hearts. Yes, this year we're doing uh, a reindeer breakable heart. Oh. Uh, of course, the uh, cocoa bombs will be in the store. They are in the store as we speak. Actually, uh, they're always a big hit. I just there's just so there's tons of nuts um yeah it's it's fabulous you have to stop online 
<laughs> well, you you said you said um, NECA wafers, which uh, one of my co-hosts actually actually is like uh, a lover of. What, so it's funny that you actually carry that because I was like I was wondering if you had that because that's now like in the back of my head something that I have to pick up for Gene because um, he loves NECA wafers. Um, now the pop up is this your first step into you know trying you know testing the waters of owning a brick and mortar? Oh, 100%. That is the end goal. That's, yeah, <laughs> that's 100%. And where are you currently located with the pop-up? Um, we are located in the Plymouth Square Shopping Center, which is 200 Ridge Pike, um, Conshohocken, PA19428, in Unit 121. Now, is that somewhere that, you know, people can go to and shop indoors? Yes. And, you know, do you order, do you have any, like, gift sets that are there for, like, Christmas? And, you know, how long are you going to be there for? Uh, we will be there until January 5th. Oh, that's great. Yes. I know where I to get my Christmas go. stuff. <laughs> I was going to say, so we can go, go there to get Christmas stuff. And then even, you know, since it's January 5th, everyone knows what's around the corner from January 5th is Valentine's Day. Yeah. Are you going to do any, are you going to do anything special for, to, you know, prevent, like offer, offer any Valentine's Day gifts, like ahead of time? Oh, I don't know if we'll have anything in the store, uh, in January. In January for Valentine's Day, um, probably not. But we do do a, a a beautiful chocolate box, and of course the breakable heart for Valentine's Day was a huge, huge seller last year. They just loved that, and of course chocolate covered strawberries. So you know, would they be able to get that online from your online store, or you know? Is that something where you're going to try to do a, another pop-up, or what do you have in the works for uh, for the future? Um, so after January 5th, we'll be in our food truck. Um, for Valentine's Day, they can find our schedule on our online store, and it's Um we have a schedule tab, and then they can also purchase stuff online. Um, yeah. So what's one of your favorite um, items that you create? Like, what's your favorite customized uh, cotton candy? What's your favorite customized popcorn that you like? Um, so I like the movie theater popcorn covered in uh, strawberry-flavored chocolate. That's my oh, favorite. that is good. It tastes, that it tastes so good. like... <laughs> yeah, it tastes like a strawberry donut. <laughs> and was, I was like, are you going to create that? Because I'm like, that sounds really good. Are you going to have that, like, at all during your pop-up weeks? Um, I'll, yeah, I'll try to. Because yeah. <laughs> I'm like, that sounds delicious. And like, I know the, what? Go ahead. 
Oh no, I was gonna say in the buckeye the buckeye popcorn um, that you that you created sounds good too because as we discussed before, I love chocolate and peanut butter. That's like two of my favorite things combined. Um, and then you know you, you put that on top of popcorn, and that's just like a ready set like eat. You know, it's an easy way to transport that into your in, into your body. Um, and you, I saw online that you have um, these little Santa candies. Um, they look like very cute. What can you, you know, did you come up with that or do you purchase that? Um, so the Santa c- candies are actually um, from Gertrude Hawk. Okay. So, yeah. <laughs> so what are some of the other candies that we can pick up with from you? There's box chocolates. What do you have? She has uh, all kinds of creams, vanilla creams, chocolate, orange creams, uh, caramels, raspberries. um, What else? Uh, Chocolate-covered pretzels. I'm trying to go table by table. Oh, there's peppermint barks. There's all kinds of peppermint candies right now for the holidays. And does she dip any of these, or does she actually, like, uh, Nicole, do you dip any of these, or do you actually, like, purchase them from, like, a uh, supplier? Uh, it, a lot of stuff comes from suppliers, and we make some of the stuff. Gotcha. <laughs> um, now, when, if I, okay, so say I'm, I'm out shopping, and I, I feel like picking up a gift. Um, what are some of the other vendors that are there that maybe you can collaborate with and create like a, a gift basket with? In the shopping center? Uh, you in the shopping center or in the store? In the store with the pop up. There's no other vendor. It's just- oh, this is your own. This is just you in there. I thought that this was a pop up with a lot of like other places. So this is. No. Uh, yeah. That's well. I want to congratulate you on the fact that your pop up is your pop up. I thought it was going to be a pop up market. Yeah. So no, I just congratulate. Sorry. That's awesome. So, what other things do you have in there um, inside the store that's available? Are you creating the cotton candy like on site? No, we don't create anything on site. Uh, we would have to have the the um, unit certified by the Board of Health. So we, we do everything in our facility, and then we bring it there because that's the facility that is licensed and inspected and, and stuff. And w- we do everything here, and then we bring it there. Gotcha. Now, Tammy, what's one of your favorite things that you get from, uh, from Sweet Things? Mm. I do uh, probably the Australian licorice. That is so. What? Is, what's Australian licorice? I've actually never heard of that before. Australian licorice is it's oh I I don't even know it. <laughs> you would have to try. Yes, it, it is. It's they're little they're a little bit more than bite sized pieces. It's this dark deep red um or or they have it in black i'm not into black licorice 
but there are lots of people that are. <laughs> we do carry that. Um, it is so good. It is so good. I, I don't know what else to say other than that's really good. That's my, probably one of my favorites. Well, right. I'm excited to check you guys out and, you know, try out some of the old throwback candies that you, you have, as, along with the, the movie-style popcorn. Um, so where can we find you online? Um, on Instagram and Facebook, we are at, at Sweet Fangs, Nut and Candy, and then you can shop our online store at SweetFangsNutAndCandy.com. That's great. All right. That well, is, thank you. Oh. I was just yeah. going to say that that fangs with an A, not an I. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I'm trying to emphasize fangs. <laughs> um, so, I, will, I will be out to get my neck away from Absolutely. <laughs> so, Tammy and Nicole, thank you for joining us on Food Farms and Chefs, and we will be checking you out soon. Oh, thank you so much for having us. Thank you, Tammy and Nicole. Thank you. Take care. Philly Restaurant, phillyrestaurantreviews.com for all information about the show. Emerus Pollock. You can find me on social media at ARPollockus, or you can email me directly at ARPollockus at gmail.com if you'd like to be on the show or a sponsor for the show. Chef Gene. You can find me across social media at foodie 2 or you can email me directly at I-B-F-O-O-D-I-E, the number two, at yahoo.com, at yahoo.com. Have a great Tuesday, everyone. Have a great week. We'll see you next week.